In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the life, times, and imagination of Rod Serling, the creative genius behind The Twilight Zone. The Howling Man is an episode about a, a traveler in Europe during World War II who gets lost in a storm and he finds a monastery for shelter and the monks that are there tell him that they have the devil locked up in a closet and they have to tell him beware don't you know don't go near there it's, he's gonna howl all night but you know don't go near him it's the devil we got him locked up and you know and that's it and of course the the devil convinces this guy to let him out that he's not the devil these guys are crazy they locked me up in here and of course it is the devil this podcast is supported by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, you need to call Paranormal Contractors. 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm still suffering from a bit of Halloween hangover. That'll teach me. I have to stop raiding the boys' candy stash at 3 in the morning. 
hey, are you a fan of the Twilight Zone? I certainly am. And of course, it's pretty much a guarantee that somewhere in the world, there's an episode playing in syndication. It remains one of the most cleverly crafted, iconic TV series of all time. And Nick Parisi is standing by to give us a glimpse of the series and the man behind the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling. Plus, a regular visit from Christian D. Cadieux from Paranormal Contractors. Of course, he joined us on our Halloween special, and he joins us every Friday. Rod Serling was one of television's brightest, most literate pioneers and a true believer in the medium. He was known as the angry young man of Hollywood early on in his career, clashing with studios and sponsors in his quest to loosen the corporate grip of censorship and write freely on controversial topics. The man would maintain that outspokenness as an artist and a thinker throughout his career. He is most revered for having had the ability to produce works of drama that probe the human psyche in an imaginative and thoroughly unique way, many demonstrating a deep love for humanity and the belief in the possibility of a better tomorrow. And we are about to explore Rod Serling and his work from the Twilight Zone to Night Gallery and everything before. Nicholas Parisi serves on the board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy. He is a former staff writer and editor for Good Times Magazine in Long Island. He's also a musician and a vocalist. In 2010, his former band, Arioc, released a CD with the Serling-inspired title, Between Light and Shadow, on Retrospect Records. He is the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, with a foreword by Rod Serling's daughter, Anne Serling. Nick Parisi, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me. You're, you're billed as a Rod Serling scholar. Now, not too many television writers have sort of this whole field of academia behind them, that are people that are studied to the extent that someone like a Rod Serling, maybe a Patty Chayefsky is someone else that comes to mind. But how does one become a Rod Serling scholar? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there are several, you know, there's been several books written about, uh, you know, scholarly analysis of Rod Serling's work, and and my book kind of fits in with that, you know, that group. So I guess that's how you become a Rod Serling scholar. But, um, you know, I just uh, decided to study his work, and I spent about four years researching uh, his entire body of work for um, for this book. Before we get into The Twilight Zone, of course, most people know him from The Twilight Zone, but there was a whole career before that. Craft Theater and Playhouse 90 and The Steel Hour and, and uh, all of these great dramas that he was involved with, Requiem for a Heavyweight and A Town Has Turned to Dust and so forth. But I wanted to ask you about sort of a generational question. What do you say to people who maybe they only know Twilight Zone because of the uh, the reboot movie that came out several years ago? What do you say to younger people about Rod Serling? Why is he still important? Well, you know, the Twilight Zone itself, um, particularly, I mean, it's still running in repeats everywhere, all, all around the world, all, you know, on, on several different stations here in, here in the United States as well, and still running in marathons on, you know, July 4th and New Year's Day, they run marathons, and and so uh, there has to be a reason for that, and, and the reason, you know, for the Twilight Zone particularly is just, uh, the first thing is that it's just 
it was just so well done. I mean, it was so well written, and it was so well produced, uh, so well acted. They were just really first class productions, and it's just, you know, to some extent, regardless of what you might hear, uh, quality does stand the test of time. And you know, so it's lasted that long. And Rod Serling particularly um, has captivated, you know, the imagination for all these years because. Um, well, first of all, because of the image that he projected on the Twilight Zone, I mean, he wasn't only the primary writer, but he was the host and he had that voice and he was just, um, you know, he was the presence of the Twilight Zone. And since it was about anthology series where there wasn't a continuing character or a continuing star, he was the star of the series. Um, but his body of work in, in total, uh, you know, he was addressing certain themes that were timeless, and they he addressed them in the Twilight Zone, before the Twilight Zone, after the Twilight Zone. There were certain themes that he was obsessed with: um, the human condition, you know, uh, racism, prejudice, um, you know, social social issues of you know of uh, scapegoating, of uh, you know, uh, you know, all these all these different things that were foremost in his mind that came out in his in his writing, and those things don't go away; they are timeless. So if I were talking to uh, someone today who maybe has never seen The Twilight Zone, I, I would just simply say, you know, watch a couple episodes and I, I you know, I guarantee that you, you're going to be hooked um, because it was that kind of a show. I mean, there was a, there was a magazine just recently that was released that uh, ranked top 100 uh, television series of all time. And it wasn't just science fiction or fantasy. It was all 100 television series. I believe it was um, it was a British magazine. And the only black and white television series that made the cover was Twilight Zone. Because that's, and that's, that's, you know, the, it's the only show that really has jumped this, you know, this gap from then to now, as far as the black and white series anyway. Right, right. I, I remember watching an interview uh, that he did with Mike Wallace in the late 50s. And Rod Serling was explaining that he was coming to uh, television to do this, you know, this half hour series uh, because he had basically grown weary of battling sponsors and ad agencies and not necessarily the FCC, but he was sick and tired of compromising himself because, you know, he was trying to write profound television dramas uh, and was constantly bat- bat- battling the sponsors, and so he was looking at that time at least as the twilight at the Twilight Zone as a way of just sort of, kind of maybe relaxing a little bit. But it, it didn't turn out that way, uh, did it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't. But that is that is true. I mean, that that interview with Mike Wallace has become um, kind of a, a real touchstone in the in the Rod Serling uh, lore. You know, in Rod Serling lore, if you're looking for um, an indication of what Rod Serling's mindset was at the beginning of the Twilight Zone, you watch that Mike Wallace interview, which was in 1958, or uh, 1959, actually, right before the Twilight Zone first aired. And um, he was, yes, he was weary of all the battles that he had gone through with the sponsors and with the censors. Um, Whenever he tried to address any kind of social issue on television, they would, they would, fight him on it and he would he would go down fighting and he would almost always lose it was just that kind of thing it was just you know he, he had to lose but he would go down fighting and he would make us think about it he was not afraid to talk to the media and say what exactly he tried to do and what they you now made him do you know so so he had that uh you know he, he would he would make it public public knowledge you know what happened but but when he you know created the twilight zone it wasn't necessarily to take it easy but he First of all, he loved science fiction and loved fantasy, and he it was the type of series that he really always wanted to do. Uh, even when he was doing straight drama, as you mentioned, on Playhouse 90 and Craft Theater and all these great shows, 
um, he always wanted to do a science fiction show. And what happened basically was, you know, when his star had risen, when he had really built a name for himself as the most prestigious writer in television, and he got the chance to do his own show, he said, you know what, maybe if I do that show that I've always wanted to do, that science fiction show, I could get away with some of this stuff that they've been hassling me about through that through that medium, because they just aren't going to quite get it if it's in the science fiction or fantasy uh, genre. So, so that's what he did, and he created The Twilight Zone, and very quickly he was able to, you know, put social messages messages into those those uh, shows and I think he always knew he was going to do that and on the Mike Wallace interview I think he was kind of being a little bit uh, dis- dis- disingenuous he was kind of saying that uh, you know he's kind of trying to play nice yeah but in the back of his mind I think he knew that he was going to address these subjects through the Twilight Zone right right yes he wasn't playing his hand I just wanted to talk about exactly, the um, right. I wanted to talk about a town turns to dust because uh, I mean he was addressing race issues you know at a, at a time when I mean that was like the political third rail you just didn't go there on television and uh, this was a thinly veiled allusion to the, the, the Emmett Till uh, lynching. But he, he dressed it up as a science fiction drama, but still they hounded him and watered it down. Uh, just talk to me a little bit about, about what he went through making A Town Turns to Dust. Yeah, well, you know, I think I probably would have to back up a little bit and go, you know, give you a little bit of background on on that whole situation. Um, as you as you mentioned, yes, absolutely, it was it was Rod Serling's attempt to at least dramatize some version of the Emmett Till situation. Uh, the Emmett Till, you know, incident uh, really sparked the civil rights movement, and it sparked Rod Serling. He was he was just devastated by it, and he wanted to do something. Uh, to dramatize it and the first attempt he made was in, actually in a show called Noon on Doomsday and Noon on Doomsday aired on the U.S. Steel Hour and Noon on Doomsday is the one that he really um, talks about in that Mike Wallace interview and he talks about how they you know they really uh, tore that apart and he, he there was no way he could say he could he could do it as a black and white issue and he also couldn't do it he he knew he would have trouble with the black and white issue so he was going to have the victim be uh be a jewish man and they said even that was going to be too too risky so he ended up being a generic foreigner and then they ended up taking it completely out of the south and moving it up to the northern parts of you know the united states and and so once they moved the setting it was just it was completely watered down and it was you know he felt that there was nothing left to you know, left to say in that 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 story, but but I got to tell you, the one I, one big discovery that I made in this in this book in researching this book is that that story is not a hundred percent accurate. Um, the is there's a lot of twists and turns in the in, in the Noon on Doomsday story that I think I, I reveal in this book for the first time, and the main one is that I was I very very. Uh, fortunately, was able to come up with the very first draft of that script that he wrote for television, um, which has been missing, essentially. There have been a lot of, well, a couple of really in-depth studies of the uh, the, the Dune on Doomsday evolution from what he wanted to say to what actually aired, but none of them had the first draft, and I actually found the first draft, and the shocking thing to me is that the first draft really is not all that different from what actually aired, believe it or not. Um, so what happened? What did happen? Well, essentially what happened was the censors took what was already a very neutered script 
and they neutered it even further. They they went uh, overboard uh, with it. So Serling was was particularly mad about this because really he did do the pre censorship himself, and he knew what he couldn't get could get away with and couldn't get get away with, and he tried to go that way, and then they just took it and neutered it even further. So so that was the first attempt, and then and then uh, a town has turned to dust. Actually, came a year la- a couple of years later on Playhouse ninety when. They said, hey, you know, why don't you try again? Try again. This is the biggest show on television. It's 90-minute drama. You know, you're Rod Serling now. Now you have a big, much bigger name, much more prestige. You could try it again. And he tried it again. And they actually uh, censored that one way more than they did Noon on Doomsday. They they made him turn the, the victim into a Mexican. They made him set it in Western times instead of current times. You know, you know the Old West instead of, you know, current uh, the current era. And he just, you know, it was really... Uh, really, really uh, changed from what he initially wanted to say. Uh, but that story, it's in Town Has Turned to Dust, it actually still is a very, very good good show. I mean, it ended up way better than, than you would think from the amount of uh, interference that Serling had. How much was Serling uh, affected by the Korean, the Korean War? He, he dramatized it more than once, um, at least a few times. Um, so he was... He was just very socially conscious, and he was he was a veteran himself. I mean, he served in World War II, so he um, he was very uh, sensitive to uh, the soldiers' predicament. You know, so he was aware of uh, you know the Korean War. He was very ahead of the curve on the Vietnam War, so it, it definitely affected him just uh, from a sense of you know Rod Sterling believed that you know war should be the last resort. I mean, he wasn't a pacifist. He did believe that war should be the last resort, and that's. Um, in, in the end, it should be avoidable. He always believed that war should be avoidable. So, so any war affected him to some extent. And uh, yeah, he did. He dramatized it in a couple of different early shows uh, during during that era. A very famous quote from Rod Serling. He, he said that every writer is a frustrated actor who recites his lines in the hidden auditorium of his skull. Was was Rod uh, a frustrated actor? I mean, is that why he he sort of placed himself in the twilight zone as the narrator he was a he was a performer he was a a bit of a ham he liked being in front of the camera um he did a lot of acting as a kid uh you know he started acting in you know local uh plays and things when he was five years old in binghamton new york um so he did he did do some some acting when he was a kid and actually through you know through high school and even into college he would act in radio plays he would write he wrote a radio series and he acted at plenty of plenty of his own radio plays. Um, but I don't think he ever really, uh, I don't think he ever had any illusions of really being an actor. Uh, you know, for one thing, he was five foot five and he knew that wasn't, you know, leading man material, unfortunately. So, but he still did want to be in front of the camera. So when that opportunity came up with the Twilight Zone, yeah, he, he took it. And he, he always liked to joke about how, uh, you know, nervous he was doing those introductions and how he really just kind of fell into the job and it wasn't, you know, he didn't campaign for it. But I think that was a little bit disingenuous. I think he really did like that job and he liked the, the notoriety that, that came along with it. Well, of course, now it's impossible to imagine the Twilight Zone a series not narrated by Rod Serling, but wasn't Orson Welles the first choice? Well, actually, no. That that's another myth that I that I kind of debunk in the book. Orson, um, Orson Welles. Here's what actually happened. What uh, there was another narrator on the Twilight Zone initially, and and uh, but it was always known that he was just a temporary. It was um, uh, Westbrook Van Voorhees, I believe his name was. He did a lot of a lot of 
voiceover work at the time. And uh, that version of the pilot episode, Where Is Everybody's, actually has been released on DVD, uh, you know, DVDs collections also. But um, so he actually did the narration on that very first pilot. Um, and Rod pretty much, they knew they, he wasn't going to be permanent, and Rod kind of campaigned for it and got the job as being, you know, as being the narrator. But what happened was, after the first season was, was finished, that's when CBS actually said, you know what, if we have a, a, someone on screen, because Rod hadn't been on screen yet, he had only been the, you know, the voiceover you know, off screen uh, for the first season. So at the end of the first season, CBS said, if we could have somebody on screen, it might, you know, might generate some interest for the series. It might, uh, you know, might spice things up a little bit. Why don't we go? Why don't we approach Orson Welles? And you know, that's when they did. It. And Rod said, well, you know, well, Rod actually agreed to it. He actually was was booked to fly to London to meet with Orson Welles. But what happened was, Orson Welles would have wanted to get paid, obviously, and they were already trying to cut the budget. They weren't going to add anything for a new narrator, certainly a star like Orson Welles. So it was kind of of a stillborn idea that never went through. And Rod again just said, "Hey, you, know, you want somebody on screen? I'll be on screen." And they and they they jumped on it. So. And the rest of this history. Uh, I had read that uh, you know they're always trying to to uh, to pinch pennies on on that series, and um, they they got a lot of their props from science fiction films like Forbidden Planet. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Forbidden Planet. I believe the, the the spaceship in Forbidden Planet was used several times on Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it was it was a fairly it was a relatively well-budgeted show for the time. I can't give it a dollar amount off the top of my head, but but it wasn't really a low-budget show. But but what would happen was, you know, Rod was um, you know, he was executive producer of the show as well as everything else, and so he was very aware of the budget. And so what would happen is you would have a couple episodes, like say, The Eye of the Beholder, where you had these intricate makeup designs, and you know that would cost a lot of money. And if you did that, then all of a sudden you had to really scrimp, you know, skimp on a on a another episode and you would have another episode where it all takes place in one room and it's only two characters, you know, so, so they have to pay extra actors and, or set up any other sets or anything. So, so you would see that kind of thing where they had to go back and forth between relatively high budgeted shows and then some really, really cheap show um, along the way. We have to talk about the theme song because it is so iconic. Uh, I mean, talk yeah. about a brand. I mean, that has to be right up there with Coca-Cola and CNN and uh, just one of the great brands. But that theme song actually didn't come about until the second season, right? Uh, well, if you talk, yeah, if you're talking about the one we th- I think you're talking about, yeah, it'll be the second season. There actually were several different introductions and uh, a couple of different actual musical themes as well. So, yeah, that was actually the second season when the doo-doo-doo-doo came in, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and that's, that, 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 uh, you know, that theme song, you just play those first four notes and everybody knows what, what it is. You, you can hum those first four notes and people say the Twilight Zone, you know? So they, they know it immediately. And it also, it's amazing how it just, puts you into that mindset too you know and necessarily to know what the twilight zone is but you'll know that uh it means something's off kilter you know you just i mean you've heard it on a million uh sitcoms and things where somebody says do 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 and, and you know that they're talking about something's a little weird here you know so it's, it's just become a part of the culture without even saying the words twilight zone and um, how many episodes were actually uh, farmed out to other writers because he, he didn't he didn't write all of the episodes no, no, he couldn't. Nobody could write all of them, but he wrote 92 of the 156 episodes, which is really, really amazing. It's, it's no, nobody writes 92 episodes of a five-season television series. It just just isn't done. And so he wrote 92, and then 
the the basic I called them the core four was were Rod Sterling, Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont, and George Clayton Johnson. They were the four main writers of the series, and between the four of them, they wrote 132 of the 156 episodes. So he only had you know another 24 episodes that were written by a variety of different writers. Uh, but those four, you know, they wrote the, the vast majority, and the vast majority of the great ones, obviously, uh, were between those four. We want to talk about some of the, the great episodes, but I want to talk about how occasionally they would break format. Because when we think of The Twilight Zone, we think of fantasy and science fiction. But some of them, I mean, there was an episode with Jesse White and Carol Burnett that was just, a, it, was a, it was a comedy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that uh, that was called Cavender is Coming, and that actually was, um, Rod Serling wrote that as a pilot for another series. He he actually was trying to create a fantasy comedy series, and that was the pilot, and it didn't obviously fly, and it never came to fruition. But yes, they would, the Twilight Zone is, is we yeah, as you said, we, we call it a science fiction series or a fantasy series, but it ran the gamut from, if there were straight-ahead comedies, there were westerns, there were uh, you know, there, there was science fiction, fantasy, and, and, you know, and everything in mysteries and everything in between, really. So it, it did cover the, the whole gamut of genres there. And, uh, you know, Rod, there were, there were more than a handful of comedies, and the comedies, generally speaking, are not as well-regarded as the rest, but, um, but there are some really good ones. Uh, I, I think there are a bunch of really good ones. And, and the irony of it is that Rod Serling himself, from all... Um, all indications. He had a very good sense of humor. He was he was a prankster. He was a practical joker. He uh, he could do impressions really well. He was really great at you know mimicking people and doing other voices and accents. And he was and he loved comedy. He just loved comedy. He loved to laugh. But for some reason, he could never quite um, make it work in the Twilight Zone. Uh, you know, he sometimes he he hit okay, but but usually the, com- the Serling's comedies didn't quite work. I want to talk to you to you about another episode that really broke format, and that was uh, the silence because it, it wasn't there was no elements of of the supernatural or science fiction in there at all. Tell me about this episode. Well, the silence the silence is a terrific episode, and and in fact, it's it's funny, but for whatever reason, you know, I didn't plan these things, but um, I think I devote more space to the to the silence in, in my Twilight Zone portion of the book than any other episode, really, because it really just. Uh, lent, lent itself to an examination. The silence, you know, for, for your listeners who aren't, aren't aware of it, it's about uh, a cup, you know, about a men's club, a, uh, you know, rich person's, uh, you know, country club where one particular member is just a bore. He's, he's loud mouth and he's, he's just annoying. And another member of the country club says, you know what, if you could just shut up, if you could shut up, if you could stop talking for a year, I will give you uh, I forget even what the amount was. Let's say a million dollars, five hundred thousand dollars, whatever it was. And um, they, he takes the bet, and he says they're going to put him in a, in a glass glass room so they can observe him, and they'll record him to make sure he doesn't speak. And you know, and so it goes from there. And what happens is that the person who made the bet didn't have the money. He was a he was a fraud. He he didn't belong in the club to begin with. Didn't have the money. And the guy goes through the whole year, comes out, you know, hasn't spoken for the year, expects to be paid. You know, the guy says, I'm sorry, I don't have the money, I, I guess I'm a fraud, I, I, I never had the money. And then the guy who, you know, stayed quiet all his years writes a note, and the note says, I knew I couldn't do it, I had my vocal cords cut before I went into the cage, and he shows he's got a scar going across the front of his throat. Uh, and he, he, he had surgery to make sure that he couldn't speak for the year. So, it's, um, yeah, there are no elements of the supernatural, but what a twist. I right, mean, that's, right. that is... 
as good a twist as, as there ever was in the series. And in fact, it's one of those cases where there's really two twists. The first twist is that the guy didn't have the money. You don't really see that coming. And then the second is that this guy went through hell to, to, you know, to keep from speaking for that year. So right. it's, uh, yeah, it, there's no supernatural. In fact, it's probably one of only two or three episodes of the entire series that didn't have any supernatural element uh, whatsoever to it. Well, there's, there's a third twist too, because the, 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 the character, uh, the actor, playing the character of this um, uh, smug country club uh, member, he ends up getting in an accident while they're during shooting and one half of his face is horribly, I think it's not disfigured permanently, but he's, it's uh, sort of scraped raw. Yeah. And so the director yeah, has fact, to shoot yeah. at certain angles and it has this added benefit. Talk to me about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think actually it was it may have been a bar fight. <laughs> I, think he, ah. I think he went out for a three-drink lunch at one point and got into a fight, and his left side of his face was just, yeah, as you said, completely mangled. And so if you watch the episode, you'll see there are certain scenes, like when the other character is in the glass cage and he's going to talk to him, he's leaning against the cage and he's talking, you know, you can always see that one side of his face. And I don't think you would ever notice that anything was strange. It was just that's, you know, that's how they got around it. And, you know, things like that would happen back then. Nowadays, I guess you probably, uh, well, you could CGI uh, something else in, I guess, or or you could give the guy a week to recover and come back and film a little later or something. But but back then you were on a three-day shoot and that was it. So they had to find some way and that's, that's the way they did it. It's that time of the week. Time to welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited our good friend, Christian D. Cadieux, the real John Constantine of Paranormal Contractors, a division of Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Christian, how are you? Richard, I am doing well. How are you? Terrific, thank you. You have another interesting case study uh, for us, and this one actually took place in a church. Yes, it was not too long ago. I would say we're almost going close to uh, a year to the date, but... uh, I was uh, working and performing uh, environmental remediation in a particular church for confidentiality purposes and privacy. I I can't say which church, of course. However, uh, it is a church uh, here in Ontario, and uh, they had a problem in the basement. Now, that problem was an environmental matter. It required attention. So we were there for several weeks, but for some particular reason, we were asked to put our services on hold and some new contractors came in to uh, perform some waterproofing and membrane along the inside. Normally, this is performed on the outside, but this was actually done on the inside. So they were jackhammering, doing what they had to do. Now, I was asked by my contact to supervise them and to ensure that everything was uh, copacetic because our services were briefly put on hold for a few days. Well, while I was in the basement and these individuals were working for approximately I would say between five to 10 seconds, I saw the two most beautiful, symmetrical blue spheres. It was like they were balls of fire. I would say they were the size of softballs, possibly a little bit large. You know what, actually, I would say between softballs and a cantaloupe, and there was two of them, and they were moving over the heads of the contractors very slowly, And then they migrated and made their way into a cinder block wall and they disappeared. Now I'm sitting here, I'm looking at this. Unfortunately, my phone is charging in upstairs in an office. So I'm sitting there and I'm saying, God, why, 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 why? So at any rate, now here's the thing. 
I was so amazed by this that I went upstairs, I got my phone, and I wasn't uh, very pleased that I didn't have it on me, but I decided to click and check on Google the significance of what blue orbs mean. And so the when I punched in blue orbs and significance, it was very interesting because in Christianity, blue orbs signify archangels. And the name of this church was named after one of the archangels. There you go. Wow. Amazing. Did the workers yeah. see it? You know, they didn't. They were, <laughs> this happened quick. I didn't want to say anything to startle anyone. Unfortunately, they didn't. They were uh, in a trench while they were digging and they were looking down and these orbs were just below the ceiling of uh, of the basement. So it was uh, it was an absolutely wild experience. And well, there was, you go. Uh, Sometimes yeah. it's not always frightening. Sometimes it's faith affirming, as in this case. Great story. Absolutely. Christian, leave us with a 1-800 number. Our toll-free number is 1-866-724-0800. Or you can contact us by paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. Thanks, Christian. My pleasure, Richard. The Real John Constantine, Christian Decadure of Paranormal Contractors, a division of Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Nick Parisi's here. We're talking about Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. Do you have a favorite episode? I, yeah, I have a handful. I, you know, I usually say ironically that that if you'd asked me this probably before I started writing the book, anyway, I would have told you that my favorite episode is wasn't one that Rod Serling wrote. It was one that Charles Beaumont wrote called "The Howling Man." Uh, the Howling Man is an episode about a uh, a, tra uh, a traveler in Europe during World, World War II who gets lost in a storm and he finds a, a monastery for shelter and he goes in and he and the, the monks that are there tell him that they have the devil locked up in a in a closet and you know they have to tell him you know beware don't you know don't go near there it's, he's gonna howl all night but you know don't go near him it's the devil we got him locked up and you know and that's it and of course the the devil convinces this guy to let him out that he's not the devil these guys are crazy they locked me up in here and of course it is the devil and he lets him out and then he spends the rest of his life dedicated to trying to recapture the devil that he that he let loose on the world um i saw that episode when i was you know probably 10 years old and it just floored me i was just you know that was it you know i was i was just mesmerized and knocked out by that episode but but these days i think the older i get probably my favorite episode is, is walking distance rod Serling's walking distance that's uh you know his you know sentimental kind of tribute to his hometown of binghamton it's about a you know a new york city executive who just longs to go back to the early you know the the easier childhood that he had before all the stress of his job and everything else and he goes back in time and he meets himself as a young boy and and you know he meets his father who you know his parents who had died many years earlier and it's just it's just a beautiful story it's a you know beautifully done story and that's i i always loved that one anyway but it was probably my top two or three i think now it's probably my top one you mentioned writer charles beaumont 
Um, the other episode he did that I remember was uh, The Living Doll. Um, just, I've always been sort of freaked out by by dolls, lifelike oh, yeah. looking dolls and so forth, and that didn't help. But Charles Beaumont had a rather tragic ending. I mean, he was only 38, but he looked so old. What happened? Yeah, Charles Beaumont had a, a, a very, very wild story, Charles Beaumont. I mean, he, he contracted a very, very rare brain disease. Uh, over the years, people have said it was early Alzheimer's disease, but I'm pretty sure that's kind of been... Uh, Debunked. It really wasn't Alzheimer's, but it was a very, very rare brain disease that essentially, yeah, he aged prematurely. When he was 38 years old, he looked like he was 90. And unfortunately, it wasn't just the appearance, it was also his mind. Um, for the last years of his life, uh, people thought he was an alcoholic because he was just, he was, stu- he was stuttering and slurring his words, and he was just never quite there. He would go to a story conference to pitch a story, and he couldn't remember the story, and a really tragic thing. He just, he just was losing his mind, and, and he went to, you know, of course, went to several doctors, and nobody could figure it out, and, and yeah, he died at 38, just a, a real, real tragedy. Charles Beaumont is, you know, one of the great writers, not just of, of television, but, um, you know, short stories, and he's, he wrote some great novels and in a very, very short period of time. He's a real tragic figure. Um, I'm a, I was always a, a huge Burgess Meredith fan from the Batman days, watching him play the Penguin. <laughs> and, um, of course, one of the, that's, you know, probably up there with as one of my favorite episodes, Time Enough at Last. For those who haven't seen Burgess Meredith in Time Enough at Last, explain what that, how that episode plays out. Yeah, well, Burgess Meredith actually actually starred in four different Twilight Zone episodes. He's he's one of two actors, Burgess Meredith and, Ch- and Jack Klugman. They both starred in four. That's that's the the record for starring roles, anyway. And Burgess Meredith in Time Out at Last that is probably his most famous episode, and he's great in it. And it's about a uh, a very uh, meek bank teller who just wants to read. That's all he wants to do. He just wants to read. He wants some peace and quiet so he can read. And unfortunately, he's married to a real shrew of a woman who will not let him read, who actually tears the pages out of the books that he reads. Uh, and his boss also is just as bad as boss. Even when he's on his lunch break, he doesn't want him reading anything. You know, So um, he, during a lunch break, he actually sneaks away into the vaults of the bank uh, to get away to read. So he goes into the bank vault and the door closes. And while he's in there reading his book, a nuclear bomb is dropped, and he is protected by the by the bank vault. So when he gets out, the you know the world is gone. I mean, is you know it's just rubble. So he, you know, is searching around for any survivors for a while, and he's becoming depressed and suicidal. He finds a. a a store that had been demolished he finds a gun he's gonna he's thinking maybe you know, maybe i'll end it you know he picks up the gun and then in the distance he sees a library and he drops the gun and runs to the library and sees i have all the books i need and now i have time enough at last i have time enough to read everything i could possibly want and he starts to organize the books into months and he's i'm going to read these this month and these next month and he's as content as he could possibly be and he sits down to read the first book and he opens it up and he leans over and his glasses fall off his face and hit the ground and, and smash. And he's completely blind. He's, he, this wasn't, uh, he wasn't just a little nearsighted or something. He's, he's, the world is blurry and he's got no glasses and he's just standing there in the rubble saying, this, it's not fair, it's not fair and crying. And it's, uh, it's just a heart-wrenching ending. And, you know, it's one of those episodes that we, there's actually a lot of debate about because it's to most people anyway, this was the one time where the Twilight Zone's 
sense of cosmic justice went awry because Bert, because that character Henry Bemis did not deserve what he got. That was a, a real kick in the teeth for a guy who didn't really deserve it. And if you go through the Twilight Zone in general, most of the characters who get their comeuppance deserve it big time. You know, they really deserve to get punished. Um, this guy did not. So um, some people don't like it for that reason to say it's just it's too much. In fact, uh, you know, I was in researching the book. I was able to read a lot of the letters that Rod Serling got. And one of the letters uh, that he responded to was saying, yeah, you know, um, this was supposed to be ironic, but some people considered it sadistic, and 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 they did. Um, but I love it. I mean, to me, it's just it's just such a good ending, and, and Burgess Meredith sells it so perfectly that I can't help but love it. That's you know one of my favorites for sure. Absolutely. A lot of people, when they think of the Twilight Zone, of course, they think of terror at twenty thousand feet. William Shatner, of course, this terrified, uh, panicky airline passenger who keeps seeing this creature out on the wing. Um, uh, is that has to be up there among uh, everyone's favorite i would think how about how about you oh yeah yeah it's uh well yeah it does show up on the top 10 list pretty regularly and it's uh i would say it's probably in my top 20 i would say yeah it's um richard matheson wrote that one and it's a it's a terrific show in fact that yeah i watched it again fairly recently and i was again impressed with just how it's uh, it really it's a perfect story it's just a perfectly done show there is no flaw in that in the in the progression of that story from beginning to end and william shatner you know you know the overacting all that kind of stuff people who think that william shatner is a bad actor watch that episode he is terrific in that episode um he's, he was terrific in a whole lot of things but but that particularly he was he was great and and yeah he sees the gremlin on the wing and turn you know nobody believes him he shoots the gremlin you know shoes it away and turns out he was right there was a gremlin on the wing and and they actually are the news is that they're going to remake that episode as part of this new Twilight Zone series that's coming out on our CBS All Access next year. Fantastic. Well, another Star Trek alumnist um, was involved in uh, a Twilight Zone episode, George Takai. Uh, and it's said that he starred in the most controversial episode, so controversial, in fact, that it wasn't included when it went into syndication. What's all the hullabaloo about uh, the George Takai episode? Yeah, um, he starred in an episode called The Encounter, and it was one of a handful. There were actually were a handful of episodes that were included in, some, in the syndication package originally. A couple of them were due to some lawsuits that were going on, some plagiarism lawsuits, or you know uh, that kind of thing. And um, and this one, but this one particularly was held out because of the backlash that was um, that came from the Asian American community at the time. This was an episode about. Um, George D.K. plays a uh, a gardener, I believe, who goes into this um, into his customer's house, and the customer invites him to come have a drink, have a beer with him up in the attic. And in the and the customer is a World War II veteran, and in the attic he has a samurai sword that he says he got from a from a Japanese uh, soldier in World War II that he had killed, and he got the the samurai sword. And the the controversial aspect of it was that they something about the sword and the room being in this room causes these two characters to try, to start divulging things about you know their guilt in certain things the one character has to admit that he killed this soldier he was unarmed or he was you know, shot him in the back kind of thing and then george Takei admits that his family helped the bombers bomb pearl harbor they helped guide the guide the planes to pearl harbor and the japanese american community went went nuts but i think 
I think, you know, uh, understandably so, uh, because there's no evidence that any Japanese-American had anything to do with Pearl Harbor in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and even to suggest that, even in the Twilight Zone sense, was, was pretty uh, controversial. Um, Rod Serling did not write that episode. In fact, none of the core four wrote it. It was written by uh, Martin Goldsmith, I believe, uh, was his name. But um, So they decided, we're not going to re-air that one. We're not going to stir the pot anymore. So they didn't, uh, they didn't include it in the, in the uh, syndication package. Let's talk a little bit about uh, It's a Good Life. And um, uh, Bill Mummy uh, plays this young six-year-old who can read your thoughts, and if he doesn't like what you're thinking, he wishes you into the cornfield. Uh, that has become such a, you know, I think that came out around the same time. There was a movie that came out called The Bad Seed. Um, that it, the bad seed may have come out a little earlier. I'm not sure, but you know the idea of of children being capable of doing truly evil things uh, is is most unsettling. Yeah, yeah, it is. That whole episode is unsettling. That's the perfect word for it. Uh, that was uh, Serling wrote that as an adaptation of a of a short story by Jerome Bixby, and it's a pretty faithful adaptation. This the short story is very similar to the the filmed episode. And Bill Mooney, yes, he, Bill Mooney actually appeared in three episodes of The Twilight Zone. This was, I believe this was the first one. Um, yes, I believe it was. And he's great in it. And um, yeah, it's about this this kid who can, you know, not only read your thoughts, but he could, he could do anything. Yeah, he sends this, send you into the cornfield. I mean, he turns one person into a jack-in-the-box. I mean, before he sends him into the cornfield, he, you know, he does all sorts of horrible things. And uh, and that episode was remade in the in the Twilight Zone movie in 1983, and uh, and then actually Bill Mooney wrote a sequel to it for one of the Twilight Zone reboots that came out in the in the 90 in the 90s, I believe, uh, called "It's Still a Good Life." And so that episode has lived on, and that character has lived on. That's that's one of the most uh, you know highly regarded episodes. Right, right. How did uh, how did Rod Serling make out with with syndication? Not too well, I hear. Uh, no, not too well at all. Unfortunately, uh, Rod Sterling sold his share of the show uh, before the series went into syndication. And there's been a lot of, you know, uh, you know, speculation over the years of exactly why he did this. And, you know, most of the time people say, well, he didn't know how much the show would be worth. He didn't know about syndication and how much you know, might be worth in syndication and merchandising and this kind of thing. But I don't necessarily think that's true because there, there are enough indications in Rod Sterling's uh, correspondence and things that he did know that this was an equity. He knew it was a valuable thing. Um, but what happened was, well, first of all, he was frustrated that it hadn't gone into syndication as quickly as he thought it should have. He was really upset with his agents at the time um, because he said the, there were other shows that didn't last quite as long as The Twilight Zone that were already running in syndication all over the world. Why hasn't my show gone, gone into syndication yet? And he was very frustrated by that. And I think he kind of uh, shot himself in the foot, um, you know. By you know, he said, you know, screw it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna wait until the syndication. Just buy it from me. And he sold it for at the time a little under a million dollars, basically. Now, you know, in 1965, six. I mean, you know, nine hundred thousand dollars is you know, it's a lot of money. I mean, it's not like he gave it away, but you know, listen, it was worth a hundred million dollars. You know, so so it was certainly a really really bad uh, financial move. But you know, for whatever reason. He did, and uh, yeah, he so he didn't make anything off the uh, off the syndication rights to the show. Uh, the Night Gallery. Why did he decide to to, to go back and and, uh, and do that? And how do you think the Night Gallery stands up? 
Well, he decided to do it because it started with uh, it started with a book. He wrote a book called The Season to Be Wary, and it's the only collection of original fiction that Rod Serling ever wrote. It's it's three long short stories, novellas, they would be called, uh, and and two of the three stories were adapted. He adapted them into episodes of the Night Gallery pilot movie. So he sold the book for. Uh, you know, to, to be filmed uh, with two of those stories plus one more that he wrote. And it was a hit. The, the movie, the Night Gallery movie starred Joan Crawford and Richard Kiley and Ronnie McDowell. You know, it was three different stories and he introduced it. And it was a big hit. It got great ratings. Um, he got a, a nomination from the Mystery Writers Guild for, for an award, an Edgar Award. Um, so it was a big hit. And pretty much from as soon as that happened, well, now he's in negotiations to do a weekly series. And what happened was he was, you know, he was totally worn out from Twilight Zone and everything else that he'd been through. And he said, you know, they couldn't get me to do another series for $80 million. You know, he was, he wasn't going to do it, but there were a couple of things that really attracted him to doing it. One was that initially uh, the network ordered only six, uh, six weeks of episodes. It was going to be part of what they called a four in one series umbrella so there are going to be three other series plus night gallery that would air six weeks of episodes apiece so it was he wasn't going to be on the hook for a full season of episodes it was only going to be six he said you know that's a manageable workload i can do that and the other thing that attracted him besides the money you know the paycheck was that uh it was an anthology and he thought anthologies were dead there was never going to be another anthology now he was an anthology where he could write for different characters, totally different stories, week after week, which is what he wanted to do. So that was the other thing that really pulled him in. And unfortunately, what happened was he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to commit himself to the big workload of being producer and writer and host and everything else. He just he just couldn't handle it. So he never uh, he never demanded to have creative control over the series. And that was the problem because the network and Universal, the producer, the, uh, the studio, hired a man named Jack Laird to be produ- to produce the show. And for whatever reason, Serling and Jack Laird just did not get along from the get-go. And he's probably the one person who Serling didn't get along with. Rutsman got along with everybody. Everybody he ever worked with, I think he got along with. But Jack Laird and he just did not see eye to eye from the from the moment they met, I think. And so they butted heads continuously. And Jack Laird ended up rewriting some of the stuff or having some of the stuff rewritten, which killed Serling. He hated that. And, you know, a lot of his scripts were rejected. You know, on the show with his own name on it, his scripts were rejected. So he had a very contentious relationship with the series. Um, Having said all that, I think Rod Serling wrote some great stuff for, for the show, more great stuff than he even realized at the end he thought the show was terrible he wrote plenty of really really good episodes for it and the show it's a very mixed bag but then again twilight zone was a mixed bag too not every episode was a classic you know so so there's some comparison there but what i would say about night gallery what i usually say is that the highs on the twilight zone are way higher than the highs on night gallery and the lows on Night Gallery are way lower than the lows on Twilight Zone. <laughs> the lows on Night Gallery make the lows on Twilight Zone look like cinematic masterpieces. There are some horrible, bad episodes on Night Gallery, but there are a lot of really good ones, too. So it, it's definitely a series that's worth another look. It's out there on DVD. People should pick it up because the pilot movie's really good, and there's a whole lot of other really good stuff in the three seasons. It ran for three seasons, so there's enough there to, 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 to warrant a, a look. He um, he was a heavy smoker, obviously, like three, four packs a day. 
um, and died way too young. What was he, 50, 51? Um, 50, yeah. Yeah. What, I mean, was it, did he work himself to death? Is that what happened? I think that's part of it, yeah. I think he, um, you know, yeah, as far as the workload, first of all, Rod Sterling was, he was a compulsive writer. He just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. He just wrote continuously and constantly. Uh, the man wrote over 250 scripts that were produced for television or feature films. Uh, and on top of those 250 scripts that were produced, he wrote probably another 50 or 60 complete scripts that weren't produced. Uh, and then a whole bunch of other snippets of ideas and short, you know, uh, you know, unfinished things. I mean, the, the, the amount that the guy wrote was just, it's just phenomenal. I'm, I'm convinced he just didn't sleep, you know, for 25 years. I mean, I don't know otherwise, otherwise I don't know how he could possibly done it. But so yeah, he wrote himself to death in some in some ways. He was a perfectionist. He would stress over these things. He certainly had a lot of stress in the, in the workload. I mean, when he was on Twilight Zone, he was working you know sixteen hour days sometimes. You know, he was doing everything on that on that show. So so he you know the workload was was tremendous. And then yeah, he smoked like a chimney. I mean, I think three or four packs is probably un- underestimating it. I mean, nobody can only guess, but it was easily four packs a day. He was just uh, he was a chain smoker. It was just constant. And he tried to quit. I mean, he tried to quit several times. He just couldn't. He was just he was addicted and it certainly um played a role in, in his early death what would he make of television today he had a, it was another famous quote attributed to him he said television is a lot like the weather everyone likes to talk about it but there's not a damn thing you can do about it what, what do you think yeah. of tv today i think in general i think he would be amazed at how good a lot of tv is today um i think he would be amazed at how adults uh, TV is today. Uh, you know, that's something that people don't often talk about with Rod Serling is that it wasn't only, um, you know, the quality, so to speak. It was also that he felt that, you know, that it was constantly being written for younger people or, you know, younger minds, let's say. It was being dumbed down. And he he wanted it to be more adult. He wanted to have, you know, the subject matter and even the language. Rod Serling used to say, you know, he was upset that he couldn't use an expletive here or there in a, in a, in a script because if it made sense, if the character would use an expletive, he wanted to use that expletive, but he wasn't allowed to. So I think when, in terms of cable shows and even a lot of the network series, I mean, you know, when you see a lot of the uh, writers who are influenced by Rod Serling, not just the fantasy guys, but people like, uh, you know, you know, like Vince Gilligan or Breaking, you know, Breaking Bad, like that kind of show, he would be, I think he would be amazed at, at what they're able to do nowadays, what they're able to get away with nowadays, and how much freedom some of those creators, they call them showrunners now, Rod Serling is really considered the first showrunner of, of Twilight Zone, and the showrunners now have a lot of freedom, so I think he would be amazed at that. Um, of course, there are so many channels and so much programming that there's a whole lot of nonsense as well. And he would, you know, he would hate the things you would imagine that he would hate. But, but I think in general, I think he would really be amazed at the evolution that TV has taken uh, since he did his battles, you know, with the networks. The book is Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. And not just any book about Rod Serling. This one um, has some gravitas. It's, uh, well, the foreword is written by Rod Serling's daughter, Anne. So how did that come about? Well, I became friendly with Anne um, fairly early on when I was writing the book. Uh, you know, she wrote her own book, uh, a memoir called As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling. And it's just a beautiful memoir. If, uh, if anybody is interested in really getting a, a feel for Rod Serling, the 
the father and the man. Um, I would highly recommend Anne's book, but um, I mean, it really knocked me out. But so I, I read that book and I, I approached Anne with, um, with my outline, essentially. I had started writing, I had written, I'm not sure how much I had written, but I definitely had the outline and the chapters and what they would be. And I, I just gave it to her and I had no idea how she would respond to it. You know, she you know, could have hated it or something, but I gave it to her and she actually called me the next day and said, this is wonderful. This is great. I please finish this, do this. And her enthusiasm and her, you know, encouragement was really a big reason why I finished the project. Um, you know, because yeah, she was, she was on board. So, uh, and then she agreed to write the forward for me. So that was really, really terrific. So it's, you know, uh, I, I, it gives it that stamp of approval, which I'll, I'll forever be grateful for, uh, to her for. Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination, and how can people get a copy? Nick? Well, it's uh, wherever books are sold, as they say, but, you know, certainly Amazon, is, it's available there. Um, you know, Barnes & Noble, it should be on the shelves. If it's not, they can certainly order it for you. Uh, it's published by the University Press of Mississippi, and... Uh, so, you know, any bookstore that uh, doesn't have it, they can certainly order it. But uh, Amazon.com is, you know, absolutely has it. Nicholas Parisi, thank you so much for this. Great meeting you. Thank you, Richard. Great talking to you. Likewise. All right, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, episode 140. Ronnie was just adamant that will not live to be 30 years old. The history of rock and roll is littered with suspicious deaths and the unexplainable. He just had this strange sense of foretelling his own death at an early age. Lennon, Hendrix, Presley, Jim Morrison, the truth told by the experts and the people there. Revelations that will blow your mind. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Westwood One Podcast app. Coming up next, could there be an ancient master blueprint that holds the secret behind the events of our times? Could this blueprint lie behind the rise and fall of leaders and governments? Rabbi Jonathan Kahn will be here to discuss. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.